Welcome to the Book Club Girl podcast, where we chat about great books with awesome authors, and you, our listeners, get to ask the questions. I'm Tavia Kowalczuk, and today we're going to talk about books about divorce. So the book that I remember most clearly that talks about divorce is actually a memoir, and it's by this woman, Rima Zaman, and she has this very passionate love affair and then a very tumultuous, like sort of stressful, disappointing divorce. And this memoir is so beautiful. It's got an unusual structure and her writing is just so gorgeous. And she's also like going through other kind of personal growth issues at the same time. And it's such a beautiful story of sort of emerging from this traumatic situation and really rebuilding a beautiful life. I'm Eliza Rosenberry. I have not heard of that book, but it sounds wonderful. It's really special. I'll definitely have to look it up. The book that came to mind for me is um, a forthcoming novel called Count the Ways by Joyce Maynard, who is, of course, a New York Times bestselling author, and this is her 10th novel. She also wrote a memoir called At Home in the World that was a bestseller a long time ago. This new novel comes out in June, I think, of this year. And it's about one family in like the 1970s and the sort of idyllic early days on this New Hampshire farm. And, you know, the the husband is an artist and they're sort of like, they have this very like pastoral, lovely farm life and they have these kids and then things sort of start to go wrong and the family experiences this tragedy, and then they end up getting divorced. And it's sort of about the fallout from the divorce over the course of the next generation. Um, I just think it's handled so beautifully, and it's very moving. Um, and I really, you know, appreciated reading sort of from that perspective. Yes, I had an early sneak peek at that novel as well. It it really handles the subject of divorce in a way that felt very real. Yeah, absolutely. On today's show. A cowboy on a 1930s divorce ranch in Reno looks back on his time working there, including the six weeks he spent with Nina and Emily, two unique and unforgettable divorcees who turned his life upside down. We'll be talking about the historical novel Better Luck Next Time today. And later in the show, we'll be joined by the author, Julia Claiborne Johnson. And now we present to you Better Luck Next Time Abridged. 24-year-old Ward is a ranch hand at the Flying Leap, a dude ranch in Reno, Nevada that caters to women seeking a quickie divorce. It's 1938, and Ward reminds guests of a Cary Grant in cowboy boots, so needless to say, he fends off a lot of advances. But when Nina and Emily arrive, his usual reserve is sorely tested. Nina is from St. Louis, rich and also an amateur pilot who is on her third divorce, The ranch hands never know what to expect from Nina, who lives her unconventional life with passion, adventure, and zest. She befriends quiet, traditional Emily the second they meet. Nina takes her under her wing when she realizes how difficult it was for Emily to leave her cheating husband and her daughter and drive to the ranch from San Francisco. The story is told from Ward's point of view about 50 years in the future, now a retired medical doctor. Ward tells the reader how, against the strict rules of the ranch, he fell in love with Emily and they had an affair. Coloring their love story are Nina's escapades, the ranch hands' quirks and secrets, and the extended family of the other women and workers on the ranch. Eliza, what did you think of this novel? This novel was so 
fun. It was just so fun to read. I loved the writing, especially Julia Claiborne Johnson. Had, you know, she's such a witty writer and has such a light touch. And I really just found myself totally chuckling along as I turned the pages. It was a true delight. Absolutely. One thing that I really appreciated about this novel was that the backstory of Divorce Ranch is true. In the 1930s, it wasn't easy to get divorced. And if you wanted to get divorced quickly, you had to go to Reno or you had to go to Nevada and become a resident of that state. And then after a period of time had passed, you were a resident of that state and you could immediately file for divorce. So these divorce ranches sort of sprouted up all over the state to accommodate women who wanted to get this quickie divorce. And they would just stay on the ranch and sort of like a spa experience until they got divorced. I mean, it's amazing. It also reminds me of this movie, The Women, that I watched years ago, which is set on a divorce ranch. It stars Norma Shearer, Joan Crawford, Rosalind Russell. It's so good. So I definitely recommend the book and movie experience here. It was really fun to read a historical novel set during this time period, the 1930s, that is not specifically about the World War or set in Europe. I feel like, you know, we love those books too. And of course, we speak with a lot of authors who write World War II historical fiction and all of that. But it was really fresh. It felt really fresh to read a historical novel, you know, set during this time in a completely different sort of setting. Totally agree. In addition to the setting that just felt, even though it was historical, it felt so fresh and new to your point. I think these characters are unforgettable. They're so well-developed. They all stand on their own two feet. And, you know, I have to admit, I totally have a crush on Ward. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he is very charming. I have to admit that Nina is my favorite. She had just the best energy and it totally jumped off the page. And you know, I was frankly a little exhausted thinking about all of her escapades and adventures. She's like up all night, you know, taking driving lessons in the middle of the night. I'm like, what about your eight hours? She's a pilot and she's totally (laughs) like unafraid to just jump into all these new experiences. So I loved reading about her. I know. Remember that scene where she like shows up naked with just like a mask on or something? (laughs) (laughs) What? This is definitely the kind of book that I would describe as a romp. You know what For I mean? Sure. It's so fun, pure joy, you know, just just such a delight to read. I mean, pure joy. So this book made me feel really good. Like it just was mm. like this deep grounded feeling of like well-being after I finished reading this novel. I think, you know, some th- sad things do happen, but I think it's the perfect pandemic read. It's not going to bring you down. It's not going to make you feel badly that you're not, you know, having spaghetti in Rome. It's just intelligent fun. It's dramatic and heartwarming. You know, if anybody needs a book that's sort of like pure escapism is going to leave you feeling better than when you started the book, this is definitely that read. Totally agree. I'm so excited to talk to the author about this I can't wait. I heard she's like a total hoot. Yay. Cheers, Tavia. Cheers. I wanted to remind you guys that we love to hear from you. You can post reviews of the podcast and join our Facebook group, The Book Club Girls, where you can talk with other book lovers and pose your own questions to the authors who appear on our show. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash The Book Club Girls and stay tuned after the show for a short exclusive sample from the audiobook of Better Luck Next Time. Today we're joined by Julia Claiborne Johnson, whose book Better Luck Next Time is out now.
Welcome, Julia, to the Book Club Girl podcast. We are so happy to have you with us. I'm very excited to talk to somebody who does not live under the same roof with me, let me tell you. So thank you for having me. (laughs) So we're going to start off with um, what I think is a great first question and actually came from the Book Club Girls Facebook group. Courtney wants to know, was there a real life inspiration that led you to write about a Reno divorce ranch? Yes, there was. In real life, during the Depression, my father had a job working as a fake cowboy on a divorce ranch. And he was, you know, he was, I was the product of a second marriage. So he was a very old, an older father. He would be 105 or something like if, if he were still alive. So he had that job and I was fascinated by this by the time I was middle-aged. But when you're a kid and people tell you stories, you're like, oh, everybody's father had that job, but apparently not. And so it was fun for me to find out a lot about what his youth must have been like. So I've heard a little bit else about the book and what inspired you, but would you share for our readers, was there anything else about the book that was inspired from your life? My mother was a doctor and she was a lot like Ward. The Ward, who is um, the narrator in our book, is sort of if you took my husband, who is the world's funniest man and an utter delight and my mother, and mashed him up into one person, because he is very like the two of them put together. Because you know how you marry, you tend to marry your parents, and we got married, and then I was like, oh, you're the mother figure. (laughs) 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 Anyway, that's great. So one thing I noticed, Julia, reading this book, that there were a lot of references to Hollywood throughout. Mm -hmm. You know, there were the ranch hands, uncanny resemblances to movie stars. And Mm -hmm. then there was a Hollywood set designer who came to the Flying Leap and sort of revamped it. So Mm -hmm. why did you want to include uh, all those Hollywood references? Well, I live in Hollywood, for one thing. I live a mile from Paramount Studios. My husband used to have a job there. He used to work on a show called, you maybe have heard of it, it was called Frasier. And so <laughs> I was, it was very fascinating. Like, they shot Deadwood on the Paramount lot, and so they built this tiny little Old West, like, in a back street. And that's where they shot Breakfast at Tiffany's and all kinds of things on the back lot. And it was just thrilling to me to see what they had. And in various shows you had, they'd have streetscapes out the windows, you know, because it's on a set. And it would be streets in our neighborhood they'd just taken a photo of and they'd hang it outside the window. People had an idea of how they wanted the West to be, but they don't really want the, like, the toothless and dirty version. They It would make sense they would want the, the cleaned up version. So I was like, well, that, I don't know if anybody did this, but it makes absolute sense to me. So I'm going to claim that they did. So I I think it worked out. And somebody actually had, there's a stagecoach in it. And there was a divorce ranch that used a stagecoach to pick the ladies up. And I was like, well, that's definitely going in. So I love that. um, That was such a great detail. So one of the things that Eliza and I talked about in our discussion of the book was were the characters. We just loved all the characters. Of course, we had our favorite characters. But one of the women from our Facebook group wants to know which character story was your favorite. Hmm. Well, I it's interesting. My husband loved the Zeppelin. And I said, well, that's because I'm the Zeppelin. And, um, <laughs> but the Zeppelin and Nina are very much alike. And I really loved Nina. And he's like, well, Nina's you when you were young. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of the point of it. It's like, because I think when you write a novel, I mean, it's the case for me. I don't know if it is for everybody. Almost all your characters are a part of you. And so, because that's how you understand, like, what they would do, what they would say at this point. So, but yes, I really loved the heck out of Nina. 
And, you know, it was interesting because in the first version, I wrote three versions of this novel before I got it right. In the first version, Nina was the bad guy, the villain. And my editor, who is a genius, said, you know, she's the hero. And I was like, oh, of course she is. And then it everything was better. Like it fixed all the problems I was having because I was like, what's not to like about her? So... There you go. She was, she definitely, I mean, I don't, Eliza, I don't want to speak for you, but I know you have thoughts about Nina. Nina was my favorite character for sure. Isn't she the best? Just so And you know, when I was a kid, I had a friend whose mother had been a wasp during World War II, and it's a women's auxiliary something, something. I need to look up what the SP stands for. And they delivered airplanes, and they also taught guys to fly because they wouldn't let women do anything other than that. And that was fascinating to me my whole life. And then I saw a, a documentary about the obituaries in the New York Times. And the one they had in their files longest was because they write out an obituary before you, you die. So they have right. it ready. And if they think you're going to die, they write it early. And so a 16 or 15-year-old girl named Eleanor Smith had flown her airplane under all the bridges around Manhattan. So they thought she was going to die young, not surprisingly. But then she lived to be 98. And so after yes. that obituary, I was on fire. I was like... I need to know more about this. So I read a ton of like memoirs. I read her memoir, a lot of aviatrix ones. I read West with a Night, which is the best book ever written that I had never read somehow. It's a Beryl Markham book. It's her memoir. Is it a memoir? Anyway, but that's, um, I free associated just there. So <laughs> feel okay. free to stop me. So even though Nina's my favorite character, Ward is the narrator of the book and he's a really fascinating character in his own right. For me, one of the most interesting characteristics about him is that he's hired to work for all these very wealthy ladies and they all sort of assume that he has these like really humble uneducated Mm -hmm. um, origins but it turns out his family's background is a little more complicated than that so I was curious Mm -hmm. how did Ward's sort of family background class all that how did that sort of shape him as a character well you know he grew up like he was from a very small town in West Tennessee that I made up called Whistler and um, it's based on a town called Bells but that doesn't matter. But he was like the prince of his hometown. Like he was all that in a bag of chips. And then, and he was rich in a small town, but like there's small town rich. And then there's like whole world rich. There are two elements at play there. He, when he went to get the interview for the job, he's like, they're not going to want a formerly rich boy to do this job. They're, they're going to want somebody who'll work hard. So he hid what his princely status from them. And then he got to see, oh, I'm really like a big fish in a small pond. I'm not, you know, these people are on a whole different level. So, and that was a comeuppance for him. It was kind of hard for him. You're listening to the Book Club Girl podcast where our guest this week is Julia Claiborne Johnson, whose novel, Better Luck Next Time, is out now. You can read more about Julia's book at bookclubgirl.com slash podcast. Coming up on the Book Club Girl podcast, we ask Julia about her literary white whale. Stick around. This episode of the Book Club Girl podcast is brought to you by The Rose Code by Kate Quinn. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of The Huntress and The Alice Network returns with another heart-stopping World War II story of three female codebreakers at Bletchy Park and the spy they must root out after the war is over. Available now wherever books are sold. Welcome back to the show. Each week, we bring you a fascinating new conversation with an author who's written a book we think is a great choice for book clubs to read together. Today, author Julia Claiborne Johnson is here with us answering questions about her novel, Better Luck Next Time. So I was saying earlier to Tavia 
that this historical time and place felt so fresh to me. You know, we love historical mm-hmm. fiction and this was a really fun and sort of, you know, I'd never really thought about this particular moment, this particular place. So can you tell us anything about the historical research that you did for this book? And if you learned anything that was particularly surprising or notable? It was so fun. Because, you know, like, I didn't know much of the particulars of daddy's job, and I couldn't sort of get a grip on what it was. And he was married, he had a first wife who was fantastically wealthy. And um, I don't know how else he he must have met her there, because how else did he meet a fantastically wealthy woman growing up in this little (laughs) town? But so then when I went to do the research, I went to the Nevada Historical Society and could find no trace of him. But it made me sort of understand what he'd been doing, like that he was like a companion for these people who were like their hearts were broken. And I read every book I could get hold of that was about Reno. And most of them at that time, were they would just have a chapter about the divorce thing. But I read the memoir of a divorce judge named George Bartlett, who was when he would gavel people into their freedom, he'd hit his gavel and say, better luck next time. (laughs) And that's where the title came from. So that was delightful. I read his memoir. It was terrific. So I just read everything I could get my hands on. And then as far as George Bartlett was concerned, I was telling my cousin Denise, who lives in Como, Mississippi, you know, the George Bartlett story. And she said, you know, my best friend here in Como is named Mike Bartlett and George Bartlett is his grandfather. So I was like, oh, my God, it's the small world center. And then she said later, just last week, she said, you know, you've had dinner with Mike Bartlett. And I said, what? And so she's, when I was on my first book tour, I was in Mississippi. They came to see me perform, and then we had dinner. But I didn't hold on to his name because I didn't know that George Bartlett was going to be so important to my future at that point. So <laughs> That's amazing. How funny. What a great story. It's crazy. And, you know, it was on the cover of Life magazine in 1937, which just blows my mind because everybody has forgotten about it. Mm -hmm. So it was it was quite the thing for a while. I knew about it from that movie, The Women. Yes, because Claire Booth Lewis, who was Claire Booth at that point, and she went to Reno to get a divorce so she could marry Henry Lewis, who ran Time Inc. And then she wrote a play and they made a movie off of the play and there's a an interlude on a divorce ranch but it's just a, a small scene and it's from the woman's point of view yeah and so i was like well this will be interesting if it's from the guy's point of view because it's unexpected and also it was what my father did which also helped so. <laughs> that's amazing so so many so many ties from your past coming together to make this amazing book i know it's crazy so So one of the things, again, that I mentioned earlier to Eliza was that, you know, when I read this book and I got to the end, I felt emotionally complete. I felt so grounded. (gasps) Oh, that's so exciting. Oh, my God, I love that. It's just one of those books where the human experience comes together. Everything is represented. But at the end, I felt just really good rather than sad or despondent or hopeless, which some books can make Mm -hmm. you feel. But there are some really sad parts in this book, right? Like I I remember Mm -hmm. the part with the horse, like, oh my God, that just, I just Mm -hmm. remember crying when I read that part. How did you balance that range of human experience and emotion so that at the end, your reader ends up in this really nice, good place? Well, I like books that have hope in them, like books that are totally um, bummerific are not my favorite kind of books and they they're beautiful often and genius but I was just like I just want there to be a reason to feel like you should like get up the next morning after you've finished reading this book and the my first book was like that too it finishes on a on a hopeful note 
Because the fun thing about writing a book is, like, you can make things more or less turn out the way you want to, and you can't mm-hmm. really do that in life. And so I was like, I can give this character this thing, and that is a wonderful experience to be able to do it. So, but I think comedy too, like, even though it's a you know there are sad parts to it, it's essentially a comedy, and you don't want that to, or I don't want that to end that way. So a sad way. Yeah. Well, it was marvelously done. I just thought it was... Oh, it was thank the, you. Oh, I'm so glad. I called it the perfect pandemic book. <laughs> oh, good. And you know, it's so funny because when I wrote it, I didn't know I was writing the perfect pandemic book. <laughs> right. And then I was like, this is kind of like the perfect pandemic book. So, because they were like, also, they're shut off from the world to a certain extent. And it's sort of a halcyon kind of experience. So totally. that seemed fun to me. Because, you know, it's nice to have other people staying in the house with you when you don't ever see anybody else. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I, I have one more quick question for you about, again, my favorite character, Nina, which is, and you, you sort of touched on this, but that she's an amateur pilot. And so uh-huh. I, first of all, so this is a two-part question. One is, I'm curious if you've ever flown a plane. And second, why did you want to make that part of her character and part of her story? Well, I was obsessed with it from what I told you before, the obituaries and my friend's mother. And my mother, because she was a doctor, all through my childhood would say to me, all my life when I was a little girl, I tried to kiss my elbow because somebody told me that would turn me into a boy. And I did the same thing because, you know, she didn't feel like there were opportunities available to her that would be otherwise. And But then she went to medical school anyway. And, you know, there comes a time where you're like, well, I'm not going to accept what society's going to put on me. So Nina was like that. She was like, it irritated the heck out of her that people thought she should be different because she was a girl. And the nice thing about being super wealthy is that you can be a little bit outrageous and not, you know, be tarred by it. It's just, so that was part of why she was like that. And then the other thing to your uh, flying question, I'm afraid of heights. And um, <laughs> I figured out what kind of plane Nina would fly. And so I went on, on the YouTube to find, see if I could find a picture of it. And I found this man who had one. And he did a little, like a movie of, here's how my plane works. And it had the fold back wings. Because people thought everybody was going to start to fly. And they'd want to be able to keep it in their garage. Which is just <laughs> hilarious to me. And the thing looked, Emily says this in the book, it looks like something that, you know, like a soapbox derby. Car. Mm-hmm. It looks so flimsy. And then he, uh, so he says, you know, hear how the wings work. And he folds the wing out and he takes this little thing about the size of your forefinger and swings around and sticks it into a hole and then puts this teeny tiny little strap, which I'm telling you, probably wasn't as wide as my watch strap to hold it in place. And I was like, my eyes were spiraling while I was looking <laughs> at it. And I was like, oh my God, I would never set foot in that death trap. <laughs> and so that's what Emily says when she swings the wing out. So. That was really fun. But you can't, yeah. I mean, some of the airplanes were like made out of canvas and boards. Yeah. So not for me. Not, not for <laughs> me. Not for me. Yeah. <laughs> Julia, we have one final question for you. Every episode, we ask an author, what is your literary white whale? So this is a book that you've always meant to read or when you started reading, uh-huh. you never finished. So... What's yours? I had a lot of them, but um, the one that still exists is, in fact, The Literary White Whale, which is Moby Dick. I have it on my Kindle because I was like, it's too long. I'll get it on my Kindle. I'll read it there. There it sits. But I had uh, <laughs> Middle March 
and I had War and Peace, but I realized, oh, I could listen to the audio versions of them. So I've listened to those. And that's what I should do with Moby Dick, too, because you can do other things when you're listening to a really long audio book. And I just haven't done it yet. But but yeah, people are like, oh, it's the best book ever. Maybe it is. <laughs> but I'm just not like, I'm not itching to get to it. So yeah. yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Can I tell you an interesting Moby Dick story? In New York, there's the New York Society Library, which is our nation's oldest library. And it used to be the Library of Congress. And back in the day, you had to sign out a ledger when you took a book out. So Alexander Hamilton and other guys started this library. And you can see all the founding fathers' names written out in a ledger when they when they check books out. But when Herman Melville was writing Moby Dick, you can see where he checked out whaling books. And I was just like, oh my God, that sort of got it back in the, I've got to read Moby Dick. That was five or six years ago. Wow, that's very cool. (laughs) But I'm totally going to get to it at one point. (laughs) (laughs) Moby Dick read by Neil Gaiman might be something worth listening to. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, because with the right audiobook reader, like any, like the phone book is fascinating. So, right. That's there a really go. good idea. Get to work on that topic. <laughs> I'm on yeah. it. I'm on it. Thank you. <laughs> well, Julia, this has been so great. Thank you so much for joining us. Tavi and I both loved Better Luck Next Time so much. It was just such oh, a so charming, glad. delightful, uh-huh. fun read. Can't recommend it highly enough. And it was such a treat to get to talk to you about it. Thank you. It was a treat to talk to you. So good. Thanks, Julia. That was Julia Claiborne Johnson, whose book, Better Luck Next Time, is out now. To find out more about Julia's book and how to buy it, head to bookclubgirl.com podcast, where you can also find links to everything mentioned in the episode. Like what you heard? Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, give us a rating and leave a review. We will read it on our show. You will. And please do tell your friends about this show. It really helps other people to find us. You'll hear from us again in two weeks where we'll be speaking with Jill Shalvis, author of The Forever Girl. If you want to read the book before its podcast drops, head over to hc.com and use promo code BOOKCLUBGIRL, all one word, for 25% off and free shipping for any book discussed on this podcast. You can join our next conversation. We're going to be speaking with Walter Thompson Hernandez, author of The Compton Cowboys. If you'd like to pose a question for Walter, post them in the comments of our Book Club Girls Facebook group or email us, thegirls at bookclubgirl.com, or leave us a voicemail. Our number is 212-207-7336. Before we go, we'd like to thank Charles de Montebello, who produced today's episode, Katie Leary for getting the word out on social media about each and every show, Sharon Rosenblum for introducing us to Julia and to Julia herself for setting up the microphone, figuring out how to record, and speaking with us today. Until next time, I'm Tavia. And I'm Eliza. Happy reading! The tiny dot in the blue-white distance gradually got bigger as its horsefly buzz grew into a puttering roar. Look, I said, happy for the opportunity to change the subject. That must be Nina's plane. A double cockpit biplane with an orange undercarriage and silver wings swept past, touched down, and taxied to a hangar at the opposite end of the runway. The jouncing figure of the pilot in back and his smaller passenger bobbling along up front. I gave the gangling boy another of my precious nickels to mind the horses while we went over to collect Nina. He pulled a face and said, Oh, goody, 
Maybe the buffalo on this one will fall in love with the other one, and they'll start minting nickels. Before you know it, I'll be rich. As Emily and I approached, we saw the pilot grab the airplane's upper wing, cantilever himself to standing, and step out onto the lower one. He bent over Nina briefly, then looked to have grabbed her by the scruff of her neck and pitched her out on the far side of the plane. He jumped down after. I broke into a run. By the time I was within a hundred yards of the plane, the pilot had come around the airplane's nose, spotted me, grinned boyishly, and waved. He was a slim drink of water, jaunty six feet if he was an inch, with a pale, smooth face teetering between impish and angelic, the kind of pretty young man Miss Pam called a fine-looking boy until he was fifty. Or so I thought until he removed his goggles and aviator's cap, shook out silvery blonde hair, and resolved himself into a grimy-faced female with a figure eight of clean white flesh around her eyes. Ahoy there, cowboy, she shouted, though I was hardly more than an arm's length away from her by then. Are you here for me? Yes, I shouted back the way you catch yourself whispering responses to somebody who's lost their voice. I decided it was her packaging that had made me mistake Nina for a boy at first. She wore a roomy white shirt, none too clean, with a man's necktie loosely knotted at her throat. A parachutist's backpack strapped between her trouser legs and over the shoulders of her leather jacket, and a gun belt canted across her hips. She shed the parachute and jacket as she shouted, Where's my buddy Sam? Don't break my heart and say he's left the ranch. He took a carload of ladies into town, I said. What's that? She asked, cupping a hand behind her ear. I found out later it always took a while for her hearing to recover after hours of wind roaring past in the open cockpit. Reno, I hollered. Carload of ladies. Back later. Carload of ladies? Sam's made of sterner stuff than I am. Do you have anything to drink? I have water in the stagecoach. Say again? I have water. Water? That's what I thought you said. I didn't ask for a bath, cowboy. I asked for a drink. Though God knows I could use both. Give me a hand with this duffel, would you? It weighs more than I do. Oh. Emily scraped when she caught up to me and got a load of Nina. If that's what a stemwinder is, I want to be one too. <laughs>